Welcome in, friends, to Wasn't That Special, 50 Years of SNL, a show that will take you from 1975 all the way to 2025. In fact, years in content that has not even yet been created. That's the plan here on Wasn't That Special. My name is Scott Bertram. My co-host is Christian Schneider. We'll tell you a bit more about ourselves in a little bit, but first, we have to tell you about what this show is all about, and for that, Christian Schneider takes the handoff. Christian. Hey there. Happy first episode. Sadly, we don't have a cocaine-fueled George Carlin to help us through our Maiden podcast, but we will do our best. Last week, I took some of the young 20-somethings in my office out for lunch and discussed with them the project that we're working on here, and I asked them a little bit about Saturday Night Live. Asked them if, for instance, they had heard of John Belushi. They had not. If they had heard of Gilda Radner, they had not. If they'd heard of Dan Aykroyd, nope. Uh, oddly enough, they had heard of Chevy Chase, which should uh, justify probably some of the decisions that he made later in his career. But Right, that's uh, not be... too unusual when you consider <laughs> Christmas Vacation lives forever and has played 57 times each December. <laughs> we will get to that uh, eventually, but... I think it, it justified uh, what we're working on here because I think it's important that we take these people and we exhume them, bring them back to life in some cases, and show people just how important they are to the entertainment that they have enjoyed over the last 50 years, just how foundational they are, and uh, we need to keep them alive forever. Just as importantly, we are here to settle some debates. Throughout history, there have been a handful of classic arguments Conducted on bar stools across America, MJ or LeBron is a hot dog a sandwich. Uh, what animal could you beat in a fight? Uh, and this is another one of those uh, arguments. Which season of Saturday Night Live was the best? What cast of Saturday Night Live was the best? Um, if you ask Lauren Michaels, the show's creator, he always says that everybody thinks the best cast is the one when the individual was in high school. So we're going to put that to the test. Which cast was indeed the best? Were some seasons better or worse remembered? Are there cast members that deserve more praise than our cultural history has given them? Uh, which forgotten skits deserve mention in the show's pantheon among, say, Landshark or More Cowbell or Matt Foley, motivational speaker? So... Over the next uh, 50 episodes, we are going to answer some of these questions. Uh, we have the full, unedited versions of SNL. You may have noticed on Peacock a few years ago, they put uh, all the episodes up, but a lot of them are cut so much uh, because of music rights issues and, and other things. Uh, you're not getting the, the the musical guests or any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. We have we have the real deal. We have the full uh, the full uh, catalog. So we are going to go through season by season, and each episode we are going to tell you about them. We are going to to give some awards. We are going to rank cast members and skits, and hopefully exhume some of the important things that uh, that you may have missed. It's obviously the most important show in American history. Uh, you know, it's documented American politics in a in culture in a way that no other show has. Mm -hmm. It has simultaneously reflected and influenced the way that we see the world for 
for 50 years. So this is just a, a rich vein waiting to be tapped. And uh, sadly, SNL has, uh, has not gotten the treatment uh, in podcast world that we think it deserves. So that's my spiel. Maybe we'll fail. Maybe we'll succeed. But we're going to give it a <laughs> shot. Of course, the reason for the show, and this is Christian's baby that I've come on board to assist with because we're, we're both massive fans, as we'll talk about in a little bit. But in case you don't have a calendar in front of you, the 50th year of SNL is coming up very quickly. And if our math is right, and we'll see how that goes through the year, a couple of years here, uh, as we release episodes, our, our final episode on SNL's 50th season should release just as that 50th season is completed, or a little bit after, of course. We have to wait for the shows to be done. And so that's why we're starting now. That's sort of the planned you know, schedule of release. And we want to give you the flavor of each and every season. We're not going to go episode by episode and tell you about each of the 24 first season episodes and each of the 22 second season episodes. That's not the point of what we're doing here. We're doing the labor for you. We're watching every single episode of SNL through the years and taking you along season by season to tell you, uh, you know, when did Fred Garvin male prostitute begin? Um, when did Eddie Murphy officially take over the show in the early 80s? Uh, you know, Mike Myers, when did he start? When was the first Wayne's World? Things that are of interest, not necessarily the, 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 the nittiest and grittiest of details from the show. But we want to take you on a ride through these 50 plus episodes. And we say 50 plus because obviously there will be 50 episodes, one for each and every season of SNL. But we will have additional episodes through our time, various lists, maybe some <laughs> countdowns, some interviews with SNL cast and, and people behind the scenes and people of interest for, for SNL lovers. So it's likely there will be more than 50 episodes along the way, but we promise you 50. We promise you one for each season of SNL. And actually, we promise you 51 because this one doesn't count. This is an introduction. It's a little bit of a tease. And throughout today's episode, we're going to take you through how SNL came to be as well. So the episodes themselves, kind of a half recap thought of how the season un unfolded, what was important, what was of note throughout the episodes. And then the back half will be our awards, our superlatives for the season. And those will be consistent through the episode. So each episode will have the same awards, essentially, as we go through those 50 episodes. Which brings us to the big question that everyone is asking. How do I get the show? How do we keep up on Wasn't That Special? Well, this episode today is free, clearly, available for all. That will also be the case for our episode covering Season 1, which is coming up next. That will give everybody a taste of what we're planning to do here on Wasn't That Special. And, I should note, from that point forward, most content will be available only for subscribers via our Substack. And that is at wasn'tthatspecial.com. Wasn'tthatspecial.com. So you can join us there. Help us continue the project. Keep the show ad-free by subscribing on a monthly basis. Or you can get a significant discount to join us with the annual plan. Or there's also our executive producer tier. That will give you access to posts featuring our unused notes from every episode. Uh, we can't fit everything in the show. You'll also get links to many of the research materials we'll be reading to prep for the episodes. Christian's going through that. 
you'll be able to start threads on our chat page and take part in our Wasn't That Special series-ending crowdsourced rankings of seasons and cast members and more. That'll be, of course, after we finish going through all 50 seasons. You can take part in that if you're on our executive producer tier. And I should note that we will have some future content that'll still be free, but if you want the full experience, you'll need to subscribe. And let's be honest, for what we're offering it for, you're basically losing money by not subscribing because we're going to give you so much information. So check us out. Visit the page at wasn'tthatspecial.com. Join us for this journey through 50 years of SNL. You can also find us on Twitter at 50 years of SNL is our is our Twitter handle. If you want to follow Scott or I both on uh, on Twitter, I'm sure we will be tweeting plenty of plenty of content there. But you know, if you're if you're a youngster and you don't know much about SNL or how it began, then this is the show for you. I remember a, a couple of years ago, there's a an anti-cancer group named Gilda's Club. And it was named after Gilda Radner. And they actually had to change the name of it because younger people did not know who Gilda Radner was. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that to me was an outrage. And uh, <laughs> it was re- reason enough uh, for us to go ahead and, you know, try to, try to educate people on what SNL is, how it started. Um, it really is kind of an almanac of America. Uh, it's the history of America for the last 50 years. If something was happening in America, it's going to be reflected in a show somewhere. Uh, so it really is, it's not just the story of, of a show, of a very influential show, influential show in, in entertainment, but really on, on America in general and, and what's happened historically for the last 50 years. So that is our, that is our very modest <laughs> <laughs> task ahead of us. <laughs> so Scott, I have a very important question for you. Yes. Who are you? <laughs> uh, I'm just a voice. I'm just a voice. I'm a longtime uh, radio host, uh, both in Chicago and in Rockford, Illinois. Uh, I've also done a little bit of sports uh, broadcasting, too, for, for minor league basketball. That's a fun period to talk about. Don't think we'll do it here on the program. And uh, also involved with Political Beats, a podcast that hopefully many of you have heard of. My co-host there is Jeff Blair. And we talk with people in and around the world of politics about nothing political whatsoever, but only about our guest's favorite band or musical artist. Christian's been on twice and has eyes on returning a third time to Political Beats. That show's been going now, if I can believe it, for nearly six years. I I think it's been longer than you could imagine we've been doing the show and still many bands and artists to cover. So uh, we've had good success there. That's a fun show. And we hope to bring some of the, uh, well, A, success, and B, fun, to Wasn't That Special as well. Uh, Christian, you're a published author multiple times. <laughs> yes, uh, I have written a comic novel, which is called 1916 The Blog. Um, I've also written, I'm a political columnist, and I have written a uh, kind of a greatest hits of my work. Uh, I told my dad, hey, I've got a book coming out. It's my greatest hits. And so he said, what, it's like three pages long? Uh, <laughs> so that is the support I get from within the family. That's a dad move. Uh, it's called uh, Anti-Knowledge, um, and it's available at uh, Amazon or any fine place where you can buy a book. But yeah, I, uh, I've been a, a political columnist for a long time. I'm on the USA Today Board of Contributors. 
Uh, I also write for National Review Magazine and National Review Online, uh, where I write political columns. I've also written about SNL quite a bit. And uh, most recently, I guested in a class, a college class, about the history of politics on Saturday Night Live. I did a full uh, class uh, segment on Weekend Update. And I should note for the listeners out there that class was given by none other than Scott Bertram, my <laughs> my co-host. That was me. That was so. me. I did a, a class, a full syllabus, uh, one credit class on the political humor of SNL. And so walking through somewhat like what we're doing here on the program, uh, the 40, whatever, six years at that point that SNL had done political humor. And so a lot of my notes from that class will be repurposed for use here on Wasn't That Special. But uh, yes, and we both have spent a long time watching, loving, analyzing, and thinking about this show uh, and reading about the show, too. Uh, I know you and I both have gone deep into a lot of written material on SNL because it is a rich resource <laughs> of interesting stories and interesting people. Let's start. Let's start there. Uh, why are we doing this show? We, we laid out some of the details earlier, but why are we committing to it? And uh, and why do you love SNL so much to do something like this, Christian? Well, that's the big question. I mean, Saturday Night Live has been a part of my life, my entire life. I'm now fifty years old, uh, so my uh, anniversary comes up pretty close to to SNL's. I, I only remember kind of SNL in the early eighties, uh, back when they used to run reruns. And so I knew, uh, about Belushi. I knew about uh, Chevy Chase. I, 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 I knew all the catchphrases and, and, and all that stuff, but I really came to know the show during the Eddie Murphy years. And, uh, you know, it, at the time it just seems, you know, something that your parents wouldn't want you to watch, which means you want to watch it even more. And uh, it really just became a part of my life uh, at a young age. Um, I wasn't a big a big watcher at age two, but uh, yeah, I, I think I've done a, a good job of catching up. But yeah, like I said, you know, you go back and you watch old seasons, and it's just amazing the stuff that at the time was prescient that they basically, uh, uh, you know, they predicted was going to happen. Um, kind of the old dated references that uh, that you had forgotten things that were happened and you know it's just it is the most important show in in American history uh, it's created so many of the uh, personalities the, the the comics the the catchphrases the effect it's had on politics and I think that really hasn't been reflected in the the podcast world. Uh, I, you know, there's, I think there's a podcast that goes episode by episode. <laughs> I'll, I'll see you guys in 40 years. That's a thousand episodes. <laughs> but, I mean, we're going to watch them all, but we're not going to talk about every single one of them individually. Right. So uh, that's basically what we're going to do for you guys is uh, there's a lot of episodes and we're going to watch them all. You know, there, there's some shows that are pretty daunting. I think uh, a lot of people probably don't go back and, and watch old SNLs just because, you know, what are you going to do? quit your job and <laughs> and sit there and watch season three. So that's, uh, that's what we're going to do for you. We are, uh, we are going to provide you that service of letting you know where to go back, uh, where to find all the good content, what content really made a difference uh, in our lives in America. And uh, 
try to show people like what really was important. I mean, you know, there are a lot of people say, well, the, the first, the first cast is, is the best, obviously. Well, is it? People say after Lauren left uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, the Eddie Murphy years were bad, except for Eddie Murphy. Well, how bad were they? The answer is pretty bad. But, <laughs> we, <laughs> you know, we're going we're gonna to try to go back and, and, and try to debunk some of, the, some of the myths, I think, that, that the show has brought about over the, over the last 50 years and, uh, you know, provide a, a new perspective. For me, uh, I recall, I, I tried very hard to think about when SNL first entered my radar, and I, there's not a specific point I can remember. But at some at some point, though, it was everywhere. It was on Comedy Central. There were reruns playing. Uh, the, 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 these first five years were repackaged and played in various places, often when I was young. And I watched SNL an awful lot. And I think a lot of my humor was shaped by the humor that was put forward on SNL. I am really fascinated by longevity. Um, what makes something work for an extremely long time? What makes something work across eras, across generations? How do you remain in the public eye for that long? It fascinates me. And that, and I, I did a course on Weird Al Yankovic recently, too, and Weird Al. That's 40-plus years. Um, mm -hmm. Penn & Teller. Again, 40-plus years. They've never left the public spotlight. They are still popular. They are enduring. They're still selling out their shows. Even something as, I don't want to say slight, but even something like Pat Sajak and Vanna White on Wheel of Fortune. Pat's now leaving the show. But that's 41 years they've been together on a syndicated show. That stuff fascinates me. And so SNL closing it on 50 years, I am so interested to go back and take the time to go season by season and see these arcs because, you know, Christian mentioned, you know, you don't necessarily see these shows anymore. People don't necessarily intentionally go back and watch. And if they do, they're probably not doing it in, in order, right? In sequential order to say, this is how a season unfolded. This is the difference between season four and season three or season 13 and 12 or whatever it might be outside of those massive cast changes, the line changes we have occasionally throughout the, the show's uh, eras. But to go back and to sort of do it year by year and season by season and recognize when these big changes were happening and how the show was also both influenced by and influencing culture along the way, I think will be very interesting. I'm fascinated by Lorne Michaels, uh, uh, <laughs> one of the most popular people in Hollywood, and yet still, I think, still one of the most under the radar. People don't think about Lorne Michaels as being this all-powerful sort of guy in Hollywood. In the comedy circles, probably, yes, but I think overall, no. His name doesn't come up when you talk about Spielberg and, and people in Hollywood who have that real big cachet, but it's certainly true. And how he was, um, what, nearly 30 years old when he, when he started the show and is still with it today and still maintains essentially the same sort of power he had then that he does now is incredible. Christian mentioned it's a way to track comedy throughout uh, the country, uh, trends, what people found funny, uh, you know, where people were finding humor through the times, how it morphed through the era. That's really interesting. And I think for me as a radio host, what is appealing about SNL 2 is it's the show on TV that feels most like radio. It's 
live. It's a high wire act. You have to do it whether you're ready or not. And Lauren's famous saying is, of course, we don't do the show because it's ready. We do the show because it's Saturday and it's 1135. (laughs) The show has to go on. And so that feeling, you work for less than a week to put the show together. You have to have it on the air. You have to do it no matter what. That sort of live high wire act has always been interesting to me, too. And I think it's because it feels most like doing a daily radio show, which I've done for a long, long time in in my life. You got to do it no matter what. When the clock hits three o'clock or 6 a.m., whatever it is, you're on and you've got to fill that time and you prep the best you can. You do what you you do what you can to be ready, but you never know what's going to happen once the plane is actually in the air. And there's all sorts of, of course, interesting little twists and things that happen while the show is on the air that we'll talk about through this time. But I think tracking the world of comedy, tracking American comedy, tracking the way, again, SNL influenced culture, culture influenced SNL through the years, and how the show was going back to an earlier time, too. I don't know if we'll talk about this a bit today, but, you know, SNL being live and being weekly, returning to a time when TV was live. It had to be live, right? And and, and going back to those eras when um, what they had was what they had. And and they worked as hard as they could. But, but when, when Showtime came around, this is our show. And I think there's always that. That's what makes it different from, and I love SCTV and I love Kids in the Hall. But even watching those shows to me feels different because it has been practiced, it has been rehearsed, it has been written and rewritten until it's until it's as perfect as they can get it. And you don't right. have that luxury on a show like SNL. And that that roughness to it is always something that has appealed to me as well. Well, you talk about long, longevity and, you know, you can do the math backwards and say, well, it's been on for 48 years. Uh, it's always been a success when, in fact, I think a lot of what we're going to talk about are the years where it it was hanging on by a thread, like it was basically canceled. And, uh, you know, every, every few years there's, you know, kind of a dud of a cast will come along and you'll hear these cries of Saturday Night Dead and the show's no good anymore and they should cancel it. And then the show always regenerates itself. Um, you know, one of the examples that we're, that we're going to uh, talk about in the future is, you know, on the same year, Chris Farley and Adam Sandler, I think this is 1994, both get fired. Horn thinks that they're not funny anymore. Uh, he throws them off the show. People are like, well, how's the show going to be funny anymore? And they, the very next season, they bring in uh, a young guy named Will Ferrell. Um, and he basically carries the show on his back for the next few years. Uh, and people think of those as as great SNL years. So, you know, there's always a lesson in there, I guess, about longevity and about sticking to it and what can happen and regeneration. Mm-hmm. And that's what this show is. And uh, yeah, so we're definitely going to get into to a lot of that stuff. I want to spend the rest of today's episode. And uh, we, we imagine most of these episodes will be around 90 minutes, around the length of one SNL episode. It might be a little <laughs> longer, might be a little shorter. That's where we think we'll come in lengthwise. Today might be a little shorter, A, because it's our introduction, and B, because all we really want to do today is set up the show. How does SNL come to be? Where does the idea come from? How do they push it through NBC? Where are these people coming from to work on the show? And how do they coalesce in advance of that first season 
and that very first episode that Christian alluded to earlier, hosted by George Carlin. George is not going to be on our first episode, but you've got <laughs> Christian, you've got me, and that's oh, that's two of us is like equal to one George Carlin. It'll be fine. So let's talk about Christian. How SNL came to be. Why was NBC in the market even for a show to air on Saturday nights? Uh, I believe the answer to that is because the network had been running reruns of uh, Johnny Carson's show, of The Tonight Show, on Saturday nights. And uh, Carson thought that was a little bit too much for the public uh, to handle. So well, he wanted he, to take a weekday off. <laughs> here, are my, here are my reruns on Fridays and I won't work Fridays. Perfect. <laughs> so uh, the NBC exec started cooking up this uh, this idea that they wanted some sort of variety show on uh, on Saturday night. And uh, they started reaching out and they found a, uh, a young writer who had uh, written for the Lily Tomlin show and uh, other places. He was a uh, Canadian Original name of uh, Lorne Lipowitz. He, of course, eventually changed that to Lorne Michaels. There's a, a, a story that uh, he or- originally planned on changing his name to Lorne Ranger. Um, <laughs> that did not uh, that did not work out. But uh, yeah, so there seems to be some uh, in SNL lore some disagreement about who actually came up with the idea of SNL and who pushed it. So why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, there's really three names, three big names you've got to know early on when it comes to the origins of SNL. One, Kristen mentioned, is Lorne Michaels. We'll talk much, much more about him through the course (laughs) of today's show and through our episodes. Uh, Number two is Dick Ebersol who you might know as Titan of NBC Sports for a long, long time. You might know him as the guy who ran SNL for the years in between when Lorne left for uh, a few years in the early 80s. But at this point in 1975, uh, Dick Ebersol is a 27-year-old NBC exec who had just been lured over from ABC. He was working for ABC Sports under Rune Ardledge. And... He came over to NBC for this uh, director of weekend late night programming, which seems like (laughs) you could do that job in like 15 (laughs) minutes. But it was a big shot NBC job back then. And so his first duty was figuring out this question about what to do with Saturday nights. And the other name around this time you have to know is Herb Schlosser, who is the president of NBC. And uh, I think we have a little audio about Herb Schlosser saying, he invented SNL. He's the guy that came up with it. (laughs) This is a little bit of Herb Schlosser, then president of NBC, in an interview with the Television Academy Foundation. Because to me, it was was clear. We'd lost Carson. We had the Saturday night time period we should try and free and get rid of the repeats. We had an empty studio where the show had come from. So after the meeting, I wrote a memo to Bob Howard, which... And I kind of ordered it to happen. I said, I'd like to do a show. I think I said it two hours in length. It turned out to be 90 minutes. I want to do it live if possible from Studio 8H. I said, if you couldn't do it live, I wanted to tape that day so it would be topical. Well, Dick Ebersole was just as important. And certainly, Lorne Michaels was the most important in, in, in crafting what the show would be like. But getting it to the air was a lot of Dick Ebersole and a lot of Herb Schlosser. Herb Schlosser said, I want something like this on Saturdays. Dick Ebersole said, okay, I know how we can pull it off. And Lauren actually did it. So 
they they had this idea about something live on Saturdays. Rich Little actually was proposed at one point to be like just to be the Rich Little show on Saturday nights. That didn't fly. They had some ideas about doing a variety show with with rotating hosts, and they had talked to Richard Pryor and Lily Tomlin and George Carlin and. Based on what you read and when you read it, some of them had agreed to do it and some of them had said, you know, maybe. But eventually you get to a point where they center around hiring uh, Lorne Michaels to be the executive producer of this show. But it always was thought of as being this live show that would incorporate some music, would incorporate some comedians, would incorporate some uh, social satire, and most importantly, it would be for the youth. And, and, and this is something that, that separated what NBC was doing from what ABC was doing with their Saturday night show featuring Howard Cosell, which we'll talk about more <laughs> in a bit. NBC was very focused on saying, how do, how do we get the youth to watch the show on Saturdays? Which is hard because Saturday nights, kids aren't always home. So how do we do this? And this is what the network and, and Lorne was, was working on. The format was developed with Herb Schlosser and Dick Ebersol, and then Lorne came in and essentially nailed things down and said, this is how I want to do the program. This is who I want. This is how it's going to look. And so big picture, these three guys, Herb Schlosser is the guy that says, we're going to do this. We're going to have this live show on Saturdays. Lorne is the guy who begins hiring the cast and hiring behind the scenes and saying, here's the, the tone, the feel of the show. And Dick Ebersole is the guy, and I don't want to minimize this, but Dick's the guy who gives Lorne the space to work. Dick's the guy that protects Lorne from NBC. Dick's the guy that sort of says to Herb Schlosser and others in the network, don't worry, it's going to work, it's going to be fine. Even if Dick wasn't sure that was true, he had to say it. He, and he had to give Lorne the opportunity to, to work and to put things together. And so none of this happens None of this happens without each of those three guys doing those particular jobs. And in order to understand uh, really the genius of what, of what they did, you have to understand kind of the context of the zeitgeist of what was on TV at the time. Um, there was very little political satire on TV at all. Um, the Smothers Brothers, uh, you know, during Vietnam, they did some, they did some light uh, satire. Yep. You know, Carol Burnett was not really a political show. Um, there really wasn't anything out there to talk to kind of the, the disaffected youth uh, kind of reeling from Vietnam. Um, you know, this is the post-Watergate uh, era, so everybody's down on Richard Nixon. Um, so just culturally, it, 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 was, it was an ugly time in America. And the youth didn't really want another show. They didn't want another Carol Burnett show where, you know, everybody's hamming it up and um, you know, it's, it's just pretty much, uh, you know, harmless jokes. Nobody ever gets hurt. Nobody ever really gets, gets, uh, savaged on the show. So what Lauren was doing really hadn't been seen before. And so it was, yeah, it was quite a leap of faith for NBC to, to, to put the show in his hands. Um, you know, it, it, he became one of the faces of the of the mid seventies counterculture, mm -hmm. uh, be, because it was a it was a show for kind of the. Uh, he says it's it's a show for people who grew up watching TV, right? And and, uh, and he was one of them. Ahead. And this is important. Lorne was one of them, one of those people who grew up watching TV. He loved television, 
but he wanted to do it right. He watched Johnny Carson every night. He analyzed comedy endlessly, and he he knew what he wanted to do on this show. And it was this balance, this very careful balance, and this is, again, one of Lauren's geniuses, this balance between the underground and radical comedy, which might be, you know, Carlin, Pryor, people like that in the 70s, and this innovative and youthful side. So both gleeful and young, but also biting and satirical. And with the people he put together, part of the genius is balancing, I think, both of those sides of the comedy equation in the 1970s. Alan Zweibel was a writer for SNL in the first couple of years. We'll talk more about his background and what he brought to the show in a bit, but Zweibel talks a little here to the Television Academy Foundation about his impressions upon meeting Lorne Michaels. And Lorne, there was something that was, there was a wit there, there was an intelligence to it. Whereas, don't forget, I, uh, my background was the cat skills, which was more, nah, you know, and, and here there was wordplay. And there was a subtlety, and I was drawn to it. I, 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 the the, the tongue-in-cheek, the slight sarcasm, the um, the subtle put-down. And so I thought that he was real smart. Lorne was very specific, though. He, he wanted people who had never done TV before on SNL. He didn't want to hire anyone who had TV in their background. This caused some problems with uh, with staff and like how to work cameras and such, right? And so they, <laughs> they had to relax that rule a little bit. But he wanted people from the outside to come in and reinvent what television could be. But make no mistake, I mean, Lorne loved television, what it was, what it could be, and what some people were doing with it. But he certainly wanted to reject the way that comedy on TV was done in the past. And that's very clear as we go through season one. Right. I think his exact quote is something like, comedy is far too important to be left to the professionals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, something to that, to that effect. And then the one other person we should mention before we get into how this cast and crew came together is a guy named Tom Schiller. So Tom Schiller was one of the earliest people on board in this effort with Lauren Michaels uh, and helped him design some of the elements of the show. And one thing you'll notice as we get into all these people being hired are the longtime connections that many of them have with Lauren Michaels. Tom Schiller, for example, uh, met Lauren a few years prior to this through his dad, who uh, Lauren was a writer and worked with Tom Schiller's dad on the Phyllis Diller show. <laughs> but again, probably one of those shows that SNL was trying to sort of not necessarily rebel against, but but show themselves in opposition to the way that comedy was done on things like the Phyllis Diller show. But Tom Schiller is in early with Lorne to design parts of the show and design elements of the show. And so it's, you know, Michaels and Schiller early on putting things together. And then we get to a point, Christian, where some of the most important early hires in terms of the writing room and eventually the cast are made. Right. So a lot of this is laid out uh, in a memoir by a man named Matty Simmons, who started National Lampoon uh, in 1970. And uh, that year he hires a young writer named Michael O'Donohue, uh, who quickly earns a reputation as kind of being an evil genius. Um, <laughs> he has a, a dark, caustic view of comedy, of the world in general, uh, one of his <laughs> his most famous article for National 
uh, Lampoon, the, the magazine was an article called The Vietnamese Baby Book, uh, which is uh, a reserved space for a photo of the baby's grave and listed baby's first word as medic. <laughs> um, so yeah, really dark stuff in the post-Vietnam era. But uh, so Michael O'Donohue was hired at National uh, Lampoon. And then in 1973, National Lampoon magazine begins a live off-Broadway show called Lemmings, which is basically a satire of Woodstock where, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, all the people come and end up uh, committing suicide. (laughs) Um, The first first person cast for that show uh, was Christopher Guest who you will know from both future seasons and other genius movies like uh, Waiting for Guffman and Best in Show and and things like that. Um, Christopher Guest was hired uh, to do the music for Lemmings, and he brought along a college friend of his uh, who he had known uh, named Cornelius, uh, who we would then learn, uh, get to know as uh, Chevy, uh, Chevy Chase. So he brought Chevy Chase on to Lemmings. Uh, they found John Belushi, who was working at Second City in Chicago. They brought him on uh, on for Lemmings. And the show, while not uh, – it, it didn't get rave reviews, let's say, but it became a really uh, popular show. I think it ran over 300 uh, uh, incantations of the show, and uh, it became a hit. So um, – Simmons tells a story about uh, John Belushi while the show is running. Um, Belushi comes to him and says, you know, my wife, Judy, who, uh, who was also a comedy writer, uh, she's not really like in New York. We're moving back to Chicago. And Maddie Simmons is like, wait a minute. You're the heart of the show. You cannot leave. Uh, and so he says, yeah, Judy just doesn't like it here. And so, Maddie Simmons says, we'll give her a job with National Lampoon in the art department. So he calls up the art department, says, we're hiring Judy, uh, give her a job. The guy on the other line, Michael Gross, who's the art uh, director, says, well, we don't need anybody. He's like, just hire her. <laughs> puts, puts the phone down. And he says, okay, John, are you happy? And John just like nods his head. And he says, you know, Maddie, I just got news that my wife got a new job. So she needs some new clothes. Can I get some money? <laughs> <laughs> so he gave him a couple hundred bucks. <laughs> so she could, uh, so he, uh, as we'll see in uh, future episodes, Belushi uh, is very business savvy. Yes. Uh, he really knew, he knew what he, he knew what he was doing. So, so that was the cast of lemmings. And then uh, national lampoon branched out. They, they started doing the national uh, lampoons radio hour which added um, O'Donohue to to that. Uh, they brought in people like Bill Murray, his brother Brian Doyle Murray, um, Gilda Radner uh, joined joined the the Radio Hour. Uh, they ended up doing a lot of sketches that ended up on SNL, like Baba Wawa. Um, Michael O'Donohue did his. Here's my impression of Ed Sullivan. Ed Sullivan, <laughs> if he had needles in his eyes. Uh-huh. And so this is one of kind of those, those sliding doors moments in, in comedy history. In 1974, some of the members of the radio show went out on the road. They're going to they're gonna travel around America uh, and, and do their show. Uh, Harold Ramis, I believe, joined the, the troupe at the time. Um, a few weeks later, Brian Doyle Murray 
calls Maddie Simmons and he says, I got to come home. I got I to gotta leave the show. And Simmons says, why? Evidently, Brian Doyle Murray had fallen in love with Gilda Radner. And she initially, she it was requited, but then she fell in love with someone else on, on the cast. Because, gonna become look, the same. because, yeah, everyone falls in love with Gilda Radner. That's yes. one of the morals of our this story is, here. <laughs> this is going to become a theme. Everyone falls in love with Gilda Radner. So Brian Doyle Murray was so sick. He was so lovesick over Gilda. He had to leave the show. And so he... He calls Maddie and he says, you got to get me off the show. You can replace me on the show with my brother, Bill, who was now a National Lampoon writer and who Simmons could not stand. He was just a big pain in the ass (laughs) all the time. And so he was happy to send Bill Murray out on the road and become part of this this traveling uh, troupe. And uh, the rest is history, really. That's when Bill Murray becomes, you know, more of a performer and uh, and kind of joins this this whole cast. Belushi was also out on the road and got sick of it and ended up coming home. And fun fact, he was replaced by uh, a young man named Michael Lee Ade, <laughs> who you will later come to know as Meatloaf, <laughs> who was a, a young up and coming comic who could really sing. Uh, nobody really thought he was all that funny though. In 1975, NBC approaches Simmons about bringing National Lampoon to television. They want him to do a 90-minute National Lampoon show. He said they were just stretched too thin uh, with the radio show, with Lemmings, with the, uh, uh, with, um, the magazine, everything going on. So he turned them down. Later, producers, including Alan King, who's a, a comedian, called him and said, hey, we're starting this new Howard Cosell show. <laughs> At the time, I think it was called Primetime Live. Eventually, it was called Saturday Night Live. And told National Lampoon, well, if you just do two sketches for us per week, then we think that would work out. And they were going to actually pay more for for two sketches a week than NBC was going to pay for a full (laughs) 90-minute show. So that, he said, absolutely, I'll do that. So he, he started, Maddie Simmons starts rounding up a posse. Uh, the cast included Bill and Brian Murray. And Christopher uh, Guest, too. Christopher Guest. Jane Curtin. Uh, this is her first appearance. Yeah. She tried out. Belushi was initially part of the of the cast. I don't know if he officially signed with them, but he then backed out and went with with Lorne when when he finally came in with a, with an offer. And uh, Maddie Simmons thought this was just a, a the ultimate betrayal. So you had those two shows basically competing for for staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, Belushi and Curtin and others ended up with with uh, the new Saturday Night Show, as it was known at the time. Lorne used to actually go out of his way to say National Lampoon played absolutely no role <laughs> in the formation of SNL, and you know Maddie Simmons. Being the founder of National Lampoon took great umbrage to that. Mm-hmm. Um, he used to rip Lorne in the media, and uh, uh, I think NBC tried to sue him at one point because of something he had said about Lorne uh, and the creation of SNL. But uh, yeah, there was bad blood there there for a while. So yeah, so that's basically how the cast was formed. There were a couple more 
that you can talk about, yeah. uh, Garrett Morris, Lorraine, et cetera. Yeah, let me, uh, just a little background on a few of these people. And and, and Christian mentioned that great National Lampoon book. Uh, the other book I recommend from this early part of the show, it's one of my, truly is one of my favorite books. I've probably read it six or seven times. Uh, Saturday Night, A Backstage History of Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live by Doug Hill and Jeff Weingrad. And it came out in 86, I believe. And so it just covers brilliant book. just that first decade. And it's just fantastic. It's a fantastic read. And so a lot of this early uh, lead up stuff is nuggets fr- from that particular book. I think we have to talk uh, very quickly, too, about Michael O'Donohue and his brand of humor, which will be so important <laughs> to the early stages of the show. Michael O'Donohue is known as the dark prince of comedy. He's a difficult genius. He's one of those guys. But his humor is very dark and dangerous and can be very cringe, even anti-humor. He and Andy Kaufman, I imagine, would get together, get along very well in terms of how they saw humor. Not conducive to live TV, by the way. Right. <laughs> uh, but O'Donoghue's just one of those guys that would say, look, it's you can't go too far with humor. You can't go too dark. You can't go too, right? You, you just can't go too far. That is the ethos that he brought to the show. And that in part was the ethos that was shared by some of his fellow writers like Chevy Chase. And that would occasionally rub people the wrong way. Lorraine Newman, cast member, telling the Television Academy Foundation about one of the many ways that Chevy Chase did not endear himself to some fellow cast members. One of my first impressions of Chevy, we found out that Tom Schiller has lupus. And at the time, I mean, we thought it was like a fatal disease. And Chevy was going on about, you know, years from now when the show is very famous, of course, you won't be there, Tom. You know, I mean, this was the kind of thing that Chevy would do as a joke. So Michael O'Donoghue was on board, one of the very first hires, early hires. His girlfriend, Ann Beats, also comes on board as a writer. And then we get into some of the cast. And and, uh, Christian told you about a little of this. Gilda Radner, uh, 28 years old. She's the first cast member officially on board at this point all these people were sort of in the in the on the radar at this point either they came along for uh for interviews they came along for auditions i know this person you know Ackroyd and radner were involved as an item before snl and so Ackroyd was on the radar <laughs> screen Ackroyd yes came they with- were yeah gilda came from uh, second city in toronto yeah she's uh originally from detroit uh went to the university of michigan uh, she and Charles Woodson. <laughs> she she didn't win any uh, any Heisman awards though. Uh, uh, she yeah she she ended up in Toronto. Um, they ended up doing a uh, a big production of Godspell, mm-hmm. which included her and uh, Martin Short and Eugene Levy and uh, a lot of people that you would come to know in uh, in Canadian comedy. And uh, then ended up in New York, and she was actually dating Martin Short <laughs> when she got. When she got to New York uh, to do the uh, the National Lampoon Radio Hour, so that's how that's how she got there. Gilda is 28 when she's cast for NBC's Saturday Night. Here is part of a conversation with the Television Academy Foundation as Gilda Radner talks about the experience of being cast for SNL. I've worked at a theater, small theater, and and I wasn't even in the plays. I was in the box office and auditioned to be in Godspell. And all during that time in Canada, there was a man very active in television writing and performing called Lorne Michaels, who 
was watching me and knew my work. And as his life progressed and he had this idea for a late night live television show, uh, he asked me to be on it. Rosie Schuster is, is, is on as a writer. Rosie Schuster has an interesting story, too. She was, uh, at that point, Lauren's wife, though they were not living together. There's actually a funny story, I think, of a Tom Shales book about Lauren bringing Rosie Schuster on, like, an interview with Dick Ebersole, and they never made <laughs> it clear that they were married, and Dick sort of assumed, oh, Lauren brought this woman who he thought I might like and found out later that it was actually his wife, but they weren't living together. And even around that time, she was involved with Aykroyd while they were still married. But anyway, Rosie Schuster is on board as a writer. Howard Shore comes on as musical director. He starts to find that crack band, including Paul Schaefer, who would be the band leader. Chevy Chase, uh, at 31, one of the older cast members, he actually rejects the first offer he receives to be a writer on the show, then accepts and then would sort of work himself into the on-air cast, which we'll talk much more about as we get to season one. Uh, Lorraine Newman's from Los Angeles. She's 22. She's, uh, along with Acra, the youngest member of the cast. Both of them were 22 years old. She was in Groundlings out in L.A., and Lauren liked her and brought her uh, along. Herb Sargent is a name that'll come up because Herb's involved with Weekend Update and Chevy Chase. He is uh, officially a senior script consultant, NBC liked having him around because he was actually old. He was uh, he was over 40. Mm-hmm. And so they thought he was kind of the dad of the program. Uh, and had, had done a lot of work in kind of like the golden era of television. Yes. So he's he's one of the ones that actually brought... You can't have nobody that knows what they're doing. <laughs> so he was kind of the, yeah, the adult in the room. Herb knew what he was doing. Uh, Garrett Morris, uh, initially, also like Chevy Chase, signed on as a writer, but became part of the cast apparently because he was a bad writer. (laughs) You can't write, maybe you can be on screen. So he becomes part of the cast. He's 38 years old, so he is by far the oldest member of this initial cast. And then... Well, it's sort of ironic. It's sort of ironic that Garrett Morris could not write because one of the things that he brought to Lorne in order to audition were a number of the plays that he had written. He was a playwright. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had performed on either Broadway or Off-Broadway. So... He kind of took writing <laughs> as his as his real calling card, but uh, uh, obviously it didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> um, and other writers in the room. Uh, Marilyn Suzanne Miller is there. She's a, a quote-unquote veteran because she had written for about two years or so for TV in the past. Uh, Alan Zweibel, who's 24, came on as an apprentice writer. He's going to be very important in these early stages, write some of the more memorable first-season sketches, and then we'll go on to really great success with It's Gary Shandling Show and other things in the future as well. He was brought on as a below-scale apprentice writer, most well-known early on for one-liners. Some of the early weekend update one-liners are all Alan Zweibel uh, things that he wrote. He'd also often team with Gilda Radner on writing some sketches and flushing out ideas. This is more from that previous interview with Alan Zweibel talking about first meeting Gilda on the show. I was uh, in, in Lauren's office and I had seen all these other people and I was spooked by their talent and I was nervous to talk because we were supposed to tell our ideas for stories. So I hid behind a, a potted plant that was in the corner of the room. The biggest day of my life, first day as a comedy writer, I'm squatting behind a plant. And then I heard a, a girl's voice from the other side say, can you help me be a parakeet? And I parted the leaves 
And I looked out, and uh, it, it, it was Gilda. And I go, what? She said, yeah, I think it'd be really funny if I stood on the perch and scrunched up my face and spoke like a parakeet, but I need a writer to, to tell me what the parakeet should say. Are you a good parakeet writer? I had no idea what she was talking about. But at least somebody was talking to me. So I said, I'm a great parakeet writer. And then um, she asked why I was behind the potted plant, they asked if I was nervous, and I said, yeah. She asked me if there was any room back there for her, because she was nervous too. So she came back, and that's where we met. We were squatting behind a plant. And then Al Franken and Tom Davis, who were inseparable from early on, so much so they split one salary. They were one... Franken Davis <laughs> was one writer slot below, again, below scale, like three fifty a week that they split, and they were always together, always Franken Davis. Uh, we'll talk about them as we move on, too. And uh, Belushi, I think, is the very last person added. Ackroyd was the second to last, and Belushi is the last person added at open auditions. Jane Curtin comes in uh, later on, too. Curtin's 27, Belushi's 26. In fact, Jane Curtin here talks with the Television Academy Foundation about trying out for the show with John Belushi and how she and he almost ended up on the ABC show. John and I were um, up for the original Saturday Night Live, which was a variety show with Howard Cosell, and it was produced by Alan King, and uh, they wanted a rep company. And so they were looking at Bill Murray, uh, John Belushi, me, Chris Guest, um, and we were uh, obliged to go up and go to Alan King's office and sit in very small chairs and he would tell us what was funny and we would sit there and listen to him and then we would go home <laughs> and we thought this is, this is i don't know what we're supposed to be doing here i don't know what's going on and then john and i were asked to audition for saturday night the other saturday night live which was then called saturday night and uh we thought this is a better deal you know this makes more sense it was thought bill murray could have been a part of this initial cast. He came on after Chippy Chase left, of course, but there just simply was no money for him in this initial cast. He would still hang around the studio and be kind of part of SNL without being part of SNL early on. But he was involved in these auditions and 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 possibilities for cast members as well. And that's, I mean, I'm sure I'm forgetting someone in terms of the writing staff, but that's essentially how everything comes together in advance of this first season. Now, Lorne and Michael O'Donohue and Chevy Chase did a lot of the heavy lifting in advance of the show. They worked together. They wrote together a lot of Lorne and, and Chevy things. They wrote together a lot of Michael O'Donohue things would make uh, the show in the early uh, early episodes of season one as they were trying to figure out what this concept was going to look like once it actually hit the small screen. Yeah, what, do you, what you start to see is you start to see cast members kind of and writers start to pair off with each other when they finally get to the show. Um, like, obviously, you had Franken and Davis. You had um, Chevy and O'Donohue uh, and start to write with each other. Uh, Alan Zweibel and Gilda actually hit it off, um, and they started kind of writing a lot of her weekend update bits uh, that we'll talk about later uh, together. It, it, it sounds, based on, uh, you know, what I've read, Lauren actually did not really want Belushi uh, to be on the cast at, at the beginning, but Chevy O'Donohue and Beats mm -hmm. uh, and Franken and Davis really urged Lauren to hire him, even though Lauren was leaning towards uh, Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd. 
uh, once Belushi came on, they didn't have enough. They didn't have enough money for. It essentially came down to Aykroyd or or Bill Murray, mm-hmm. and Dick Ebersol did not like Murray. He didn't think he he added enough to the show. He thought he was kind of one one dimensional, and so they decided to go with with Aykroyd. Uh, in Tom Davis's memoir, this is, a, this is a direct quote: "Quote nobody who has ever done that show has done it better than Dan Aykroyd, and we all know it." Unquote which is high praise from Tom Davis. Yeah. Um, SNL historians will always tell you, obviously Eddie Murphy is the best, but uh, among the people who were there and saw it, Aykroyd evidently was the genius behind the whole thing. So, And, and there's that famous, um, I think it's, Eric, is it Eric Idle? Uh, who said of Dan Aykroyd, he's the only SNL cast member who could have been a Python because he's the only one that could write as well as he did and perform as well as he did. He's the only one that would have fit in that troupe. So he said, right. Yep. So as we get closer to the air date, the debut uh, season one, episode one, Christian, what is going to happen on the show begins to uh, begins to solidify. And these first, what, six episodes or so are very much not like the rest of the 18 in season one or the way SNL would be in the future. And so they're, they're trying to find the right formula and we'll get far more into that during the individual season one episode as we see things come together. But as it's being proposed and as it's being laid out, what do we have in the show? Well, we've got these, we've got a host, right? We've, we've got a famous host, (laughs) hopefully someone who's able to, to, to draw viewers and to command attention. That's George Carlin early on. That's Paul Simon for uh, number two. It's Rob Reiner for number three, Candace Bergen, uh, Richard Klein. So you have a host who's involved, there's a monologue, and then there are these sketches involving what, what is dubbed the not ready for primetime players, these seven cast members, and, and that is taken because on Howard Cosell's show, and again, we should be specific about this. So on ABC, there's a show, Saturday Night Live with Howard Cosell, that debuts around the same time as NBC's Saturday Night. So for these first two and a half years or so, SNL is not SNL. It's NBC's Saturday Night. The ABC show with Howard Cosell is a flop. And (laughs) that is how the NBC gets the name eventually. But in the beginning, as they're planning, uh, Howard Cosell's people, Brian Doyle Murray, Christopher Guest, Bill Murray, they're called the primetime players. And so NBC, to tweak Howard Cosell and ABC, calls their seven cast members the not ready for primetime players. So they'll be involved in these sketches through the show. And by the way, very important point to make that I made sure my my class all knew. When we talk about these things that are done on the show, they are not skits. Lorne was very specific about this. He said, children, kids do skits. We do (laughs) sketches. So the, the not ready for primetime players do these sketches throughout the show. The commercial parodies were always meant to be a part of the show. Lorne loved them because it gave him a, a degree of certainty. We knew these things were in the can. We knew exactly how long they were. We knew they were finished, written, and ready to go. So he liked having those parodies available. They'd run a lot of these in season one. Then you've got musical acts. Uh, early on, again, two different acts per show performing multiple times each show. Stand-up comics would be on the show. Not just the host, but other stand-up comics would have some some time. A film by Albert Brooks 
who at that point was 27, you know, in his late 20s and not famous, right, at this point yet. And Albert Brooks was actually the first part of the show that was locked in. They had been talking to Albert Brooks about this concept for a while, and they weren't sure, sure how he was going to be involved. And they said, how about you just do a short film each week? He said, sure, that sounds great. And Brooks claims, although Lauren says it's not true, Albert Brooks claims he's the guy that suggested rotating hosts because they came to <laughs> Albert Brooks and said, hey, why don't you be, be one of our uh, uh, you know, stable of four hosts? We'll just rotate through the four of you guys through the season. And Brooks said, why don't you have someone new each week? And he says, they said, that's a great idea. <laughs> Lauren says it didn't happen that way. But you have a film by Albert Brooks and and Christian's oh favorite oh part of the show. <laughs> we'll spend hours talking about the Muppets and Jim Henson. <laughs> um, perhaps that's best left for a conversation in season one. And then Weekend Update with Chevy Chase and Herb Sargent helping write and Ellen Zweibel helping him write. Weekend Update was a part from the beginning, too. So you begin to see how the show is 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 put together as we approach the beginning of season one. And then something else to realize as we approach the beginning of the first season of NBC's Saturday Night is how uncertain anyone was, except for Lorne, that this was going to be a success. <laughs> Lorne, there, there's a phrase that I, I think we'll have, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's in our season one rundown, I know. Uh, manifest destiny hit, meaning Lorne simply believed and he he forced everyone involved on his show to believe it was going to be a hit. It was going to be a success. People were going to watch this show. Nobody at NBC was sure about that. And they were probably right to have their concerns. It was a new time slot, a lot of new people involved on the show. They weren't getting a lot of communication from Lauren about what this thing was going to be. Dick Ebersol was sort of running buffer between the two sides and saying, don't worry, Lauren's got it covered. Don't worry, it's going to be fine. Don't worry, everything's going to be okay. But NBC was really uncertain about a lot of this stuff. And Lauren did not help things by going way over budget on almost everything. I know we said they, they couldn't have Bill Murray because they didn't have the money. That was one of the few things that they said, no, I'm sorry, we don't have the money. They would just find ways to get their budget approved through NBC. Sometimes they weren't directly to the president of NBC, Herb Schlosser, specifically with the renovations to 8H, which is where the show began and where the show continues to this day. 8H was a very old NBC studio and needed a lot of renovations, something like $300,000, which to us today sounds like it's NBC, whatever, 300K. It's a lot of money. Right. It's a lot of money to try to renovate 8H to get into uh, a, a space and a situation where they could do the show the way they wanted to do the show. And they met all sorts of resistance. So Lauren went, I think Lauren and Dick went right to Herb Schlosser, the president of NBC, and said, this is what we need to renovate 8H to do this show. And Herb, because he wanted to do, this is again where Herb comes in the conversation, he wanted the show to work. He wanted the show to succeed. It was partially his idea. He said, yeah. But Dick Ebersole used a lot of favors. Dick Ebersole expended a lot of... And remember, he's new at NBC, too. Yeah. But expended a lot of his personal capital with people at NBC to make this work, to make it function. That confidence Lorne had that the show would work, that confidence he had that it was going to be funny, the confidence he had that he was developing something for NBC 
that was going to be a, a runaway success. He expressed that to everyone around him. If he had any doubts, he didn't show it. Jane Curtin here, I think talking about meeting Lauren for the very first time, being in his office for the very first time, this is more from the Television Academy Foundation interview. You know, you had to, after you were hired, you had to go in and, and sort of sit at the master's feet. And uh, I did, and, and um, he asked me questions and about my life. And, and uh, he said, I, uh, you're married? And I said, yeah, I just got married last May. And, and he said, it's not going to last. And I said, well, we'll see. And uh, then he told me other things, uh, things that were going to happen in my life because of my being on the show. And I said, well, we'll see. <laughs> he was pretty confident, and uh, I was pretty confident that he was pretty wrong. And uh, so, but I, I thought, well, he must know what he's doing. He's got all these people, so let's let's see what happens. And uh, here's what happens. Forty years later, he's still doing it. In modern uh, tech bro parlance, uh, Lauren was in fake it till you make it mode, <laughs> um, which. Uh, you know, at some point, NBC just became pot committed and they're like, we've already sunk so much money into the show. If yeah. we just pull it off the air, it's all it's all for naught. Um, so, yeah, he was faking it till he was making it much like Elizabeth Holmes, although he didn't <laughs> end up in prison uh, for starting Theranos. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he believed in the show more than more than anyone. He had his vision and, uh, you know, it turned out to be revolutionary, One even though the- it didn't seem, seem like it at the time. One of the last pieces to slot into place, and one of the most important pieces, is the director of SNL, Davey Wilson. So Davey Wilson was one of the few people on the show who had extensive television experience. And so they relied on Davey Wilson extensively to actually mold what they had written for television. Uh, you know, writers would come up and say, I think Davey Wilson has a quote in one of these books where he says, you know, he gets this treatment for a sketch and it says, uh, sketch opens with, with the, the set flooded. <laughs> and Davey's like, no, <laughs> we're not going to flood the set for this sketch, right? You, you can't write these multi-part, multi-setting kind of sketches that last five minutes. It just simply won't work. And so they relied on Davey Wilson quite a bit early on as director to mold the show for television. And there was this clash, um, sometimes friendly, sometimes not so friendly, between what Davy Wilson told them they could do and what they actually wanted to do on the show. But we should not minimize his importance as director and the way he helped take some of the printed word and move it onto the screen. How to get what they wrote actually into the sketches that would be on the, the show on Saturday nights. Davy Wilson, for a long time, was an essential part of SNL. I think that uh, provides a pretty good runway up until uh, the first episode of season one, which we are going to talk about uh, in our next episode. Uh, That's when we really start for real. We're going to have some general discussion about the the season in general, how it, how it came about uh, some, some more themes. And then we're, Going to start the, the podcast in earnest, which is to start handing out awards uh, for different aspects of the show, best sketches, uh, best cast members, a lot of a lot of categories there. So that's mainly going to be what the uh, what the show looks like, uh, much like SNL. It's going to take a couple episodes for us to, <laughs> oh, <laughs> to, yeah. get, to get it right, uh, as we will talk about in the next uh, in the next episode. But uh, 
Our budget, by the way, far less than NBC's budget for the show, too. I, somehow we're, we're pulling this off on a, on a shoestring. <laughs> uh, I'm still waiting for my $300,000 check. Um, yeah. Anytime you want to send that, that would, be, that would be great. But yeah, so that's, uh, that's an explanation of what the show is going to be about. And uh, we hope you will tune in with us moving forward. It's going to be a lot of fun. As we wrap up this uh, teaser episode, previewing wasn't that special. The, uh, the the series, the project, a reminder, this episode's free. You can listen to it as much as your heart desires. The same is true with our first episode covering season one. That way you can get a, a taste of what we're doing here. And as we noted before, most of the content will be available only for subscribers by our Substack, which is wasn't that special.com again wasn't that special all one word dot com so join us there help continue the project help keep the show ad free join us on a monthly basis join us on an annual basis get a significant discount there and there's also the option of our executive producer tier access to posts featuring unused notes from shows You'll also get links to many of the research materials we'll be reading to prep for episodes. You can start threads on our chat page where we will all be participating and take part at the very end in our crowdsourced rankings of SNL seasons, cast members, and more. But you got to be an executive producer to take part in all that stuff. And again, we'll still have some future content that's free, but if you want the full WTS experience, uh, you will need to subscribe. That's at wasn'tthatspecial.com. I'm sure you can also find us via the the, the trails and, and, and tunnels at Substack, too. But Wasn't That Special gets you right there. Wasn'tthatspecial.com. Join us for this trip through 50 years of SNL. This, the, uh, the teaser, the preview, getting you up to season one. Next time, we return and we'll walk you through the revolutionary season one of NBC's Saturday night. Hey, for Christian Schneider, I'm Scott Bertrand. This has been Wasn't That Special. 50 years of SNL. I gotta tell you, it's been such a great show. We've had an amazing time this week. Thank you so much to all the cast, uh, the crew, especially the writers. What a great week. Can't wait to do it again. Thank you so much. See you next time.